Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. All right, so the topic of today's episode is particularly fascinating to me, and I'm super excited to get down to it. But before we do, Kellen, I just wanted to ask if you had any thoughts maybe from last week's episode um, or anything that maybe has come up this week. Yeah, actually, this week was the first time that I brought up collapse to somebody, and I immediately received an eye roll response. <laughs> Classic. Yeah, and I think it was even just the word collapse. Like that, I don't know if that's just a trigger for certain people, but as soon as I mentioned something about, hey, this podcast, you should check it out, they said, what's it about? And I said, collapse. They're like, what? What does that mean? And then as soon as I said anything about societal collapse, they just rolled their eyes. So I think I get a sense for the frustration that other people feel. And it made me wonder, maybe there's a softer approach. Maybe people just need to be eased into it. But maybe, like we've talked about before, there's just kind of this natural resistance, right? People just don't want to hear bad news. Yeah, we've talked about it before, where it just seems like everybody kind of tends to believe that it's all figured out. And that even though they may not have the solutions, that someone has to have them, because if not, everyone would be panicking, right? And so when everybody thinks that, that someone else has it under control, really nobody does. And yeah, when they hear the word collapse and you talk about societal collapse, it sounds dramatic and harsh and they immediately get in their heads all the things that doomsdayers preach about. 2012 is going to be the apocalypse and the end of the world and all these things that have no basis and they don't happen when people say they're going to. And because people haven't taken the time to learn what we're talking about, which, like I mentioned in the first episode, is somewhat complex, they immediately turn away from it. I think you're spot on with that because I remember as a kid thinking like, when you're an adult... You just understand the world and you know exactly what you're doing. But then I keep thinking, like, when do I get to that point? <laughs> right. When do I feel like I'm my actual age? You don't know what the crap we're doing. Yeah. And when it comes to, like, what you're doing at work or with your finances or buying a home or being a parent. Yeah. All of that. It just seems like nobody really knows what they're doing. Yeah. I think that just like as a kid, you look to your parents who have the answers to everything we just automatically assume that our leaders, our government, politicians, whoever it may be, have all the answers and know exactly what to do to steer us clear of danger. And so we don't bother taking it upon ourselves to do that because we know that we're powerless to. And that feeling of powerlessness makes us not even try to learn it in the first place. And really, that's what this podcast is, is giving people the power to understand it. But again, to the person who you just say, like, listen to my podcast about collapse, 
they're not going to understand immediately what we're talking about. And I think we've talked about this before, but let's do an episode sometime about good ways to bring it up to people and and have these conversations because I think there are really powerful and effective ways to talk about it. And we have an advantage here because I invited you onto the podcast as you know a good friend of mine. We have built a lot of trust and I can sit here and explain it to you and you agree to that. Whereas in most cases, in most relationships, that's not how it is. And so I think it would be great to talk about different strategies to be able to bring it up with people who you care about and and want them to be able to learn this as well. I think that sounds great. All right. But the purpose of this episode is to better understand our financial system and to see how it plays into economics and into everything else that we've talked about up to this point. I do just want to make a note before we really dive into this, that this topic of the economy and our financial system is huge. We could spend hours or days diving into this because it's a monster in and of itself. And while we may do more episodes on it in the future to get into more detail, uh, I'm going to give the most succinct summary of it that I can to get the point across in this one. And most of what I'm going to present today comes from a video series that I highly recommend watching on YouTube called The Crash Course, the 2014 version. And it's on a YouTube channel called Peak Prosperity. So while I'm going to, you know, we're going to talk here for half an hour to 40 minutes This series of videos is like three hours long and really goes into it in depth. So if after listening to this, the details of it are foggy and you want to learn more, I really do recommend going and watching that YouTube playlist. I'm glad you've done your research and I'm excited to have this conversation because when I did my master's in business administration, I took classes on economics and on finances and on accounting. And yet I feel like I still don't really understand it that well. And it's especially confusing because I feel like, from what I've seen, economists can't even agree with one another. Like, there are just so many models out there, and some of it kind of delves into the realm of philosophy, and people have all sorts of different ideas, and and every economist takes their own approach to what the economy really looks like and what the ideal economy should be. When it comes to the economy, there are so many different ideas and philosophies out there about how it should be run. And so that plays a big part into this and why it's really hard to predict into the future what's going to happen with the economy. When it comes to the financial system, though, it's more concrete and we're able to have a better idea of how the system was created and what it requires. And we're going to go into a lot of that today as well. But so that you guys have access to that YouTube playlist, I'm going to tweet that out from our Twitter account, which we just created. I have two followers so far. It's at CollapsePod collapse pod so feel free to check it out if you feel like that resource will be helpful for you all right so now we can get into the fun stuff so we have talked about how the health of our economy is tied directly to our resources and this isn't some convoluted chain of like cause and effect but rather when it comes to what wealth actually is our wealth is resources back in the day if you were wealthy it's because you owned land That's because land is a resource, but it's also where we find all of Earth's other resources, whether it's water, topsoil, or oil. The person who owned the land was the person that was wealthy because they could distribute the resources. And so really there are three types of wealth, and resources is that primary form. The secondary form is what we can turn those resources into. So any products or goods, you know, we chop down a tree, turn that into wood to make a desk or a house or whatever. That's the secondary form of wealth. And the tertiary form of wealth, the third form, is all the paper abstractions. So money, bonds, stocks, those aren't forms of wealth in and of themselves. It's just a claim on wealth. If I have money, then I'm able to trade that for the goods and services made from resources. So without primary wealth, there can't be secondary or tertiary wealth. Money isn't worth anything if there's no goods and services to trade it for. So you could have a billion dollars in a suitcase on a deserted island by yourself, but that money would have no value because you have nothing to trade it for. Yeah, I think that makes complete sense. And to make sure I understand correctly, it's like first level is just the raw material. I find a bunch of seashells and that's like what nature has given me. I go make those into a necklace and that's the second level. And then I go sell it to somebody for money and that's the third level, which makes sense that money has to be tied back to something of actual value. But I think we forget that. I think often we look at money and we just idolize money and we it's all about money in the bank and trying to get as big of a number in our bank account as we possibly can. It's a bit of a paradigm shift, right? Because we're so used to thinking about cash as being what's powerful, but really it's the resources behind all that money that truly gives us wealth. 
And so in that way, the economy is directly tied to the amount of resources that we have. And that is why it's so critical that we take care of, especially the non-renewable resources that we have. It's also misguided to put so much trust in money because money can change in value over time. And it does change in value over time. It's not a constant. And we'll talk more about that uh, later in the episode. But first, I think it's good to talk about where money comes from, how it's created. And this is where things start to get a little bit dicey in our financial system. And so most people, I don't think, know how our money is created. I think that a lot of people probably figure that it's like printed on a printer. When in reality, most of our money is actually created digitally. It's just numbers in a computer somewhere. And while I'm going to explain this next part as simply as possible, the creation of money is actually kind of hard to grasp how it all works because it seems counterintuitive. So if it doesn't make sense the first time you listen to it, we'll try and clarify at the end. And Kellen, if it doesn't make sense to you, let me know and we'll make sure that it really hits home because this part is important. Got it. So the first way that it's created is that in the U.S. and most countries, we use what is called fractional reserve banking. And you may have heard the term before, but in a really simplistic scenario, this is what that means. If I go to a bank and deposit $100, that bank doesn't actually have to keep that $100 in a safe somewhere. They actually only have to keep a very small fraction of that reserved, which is why it's called fractional reserve banking. How much they're required to keep depends on how big the bank is, but it usually ranges somewhere between 0 and 10%. For the sake of this example, we'll just say it's the larger of the numbers, 10%. So if I take $100, they have to keep $10 on reserve, and the other $90 they can now use to loan out to other people or businesses. So the person that they lend that $90 to can then take that money and buy something, and the person they bought it from can then take that money and put it in another bank. So now that bank can take that $90, keep only 10% of it on reserve, and loan out the other 90%. So in this specific example then, where each bank has to keep just 10% and they can loan out the other 90%, that means that mathematically this could be done 74 times. And that $100 that I deposited into the bank will have turned into $1,000 that is now out in the community. Of that newly created $1,000, $100 is reserves in the bank, there's $1,000 in total in people's bank accounts, and $900 of that is new debt because it was loaned out to people. So all of this new money was loaned into existence and every dollar that was created is backed by debt, plus an interest now owed to the bank on that debt. Well, let me just pause you there. That's a lot to wrap my head around and let me just make sure I've got a handle on it. So you go put $100 into the bank, you on paper have $100 in your account. Right. I go into the bank and take out a loan for $90 and I go put that in another bank. So between the two banks, there's now $190 in accounts. Right. And we started with just 100. So we've just almost doubled the amount of money that's been created. So as that gets compounded, money's basically just being created, but not tied to anything of real value. It's just created from debt. That's right. So that money was loaned into existence. So the other way that money is created is at the federal level. And to put it in just like the absolute most simple way possible, first we have to understand that the government goes into debt to pay for the things that it needs. So for example, during coronavirus, Congress came up with this $2.2 trillion stimulus package, which by the way, just kind of as a side note, like if you ever really thought about what that number even means, like a trillion dollars. Man, no matter how many times it's explained to me, I can never fully grasp it. Yeah, it's a concept that our brains don't really understand. The way that it was explained in this peak prosperity video that I've mentioned already is that, Kellen, if you and I had a $1,000 bill and we were going to go spend it out on the town tonight, we could probably do quite a few fun things with that $1,000, right? Well, if we had a four-inch stack of $1,000 bills, we would be millionaires. That would be a million dollars. So you can fit, you know, a four inch stack of $1,000 bills in your hand. A trillion dollars would be a stack of $1,000 bills that would stretch for 68 miles. That is insane. So yeah, if you're driving in a car at 68 miles per hour, you would drive for an hour 
with thousand dollar bills stacked in it just you know we're not talking like end to end but like a thick stack on the side of the road that entire hour-long drive at freeway speeds i mean that is just an unbelievably incredible amount of money but anyway back to it so congress came up with this 2.2 trillion dollar stimulus package they didn't actually have that money on hand it wasn't in the budget and so they have to go to the treasury department of the united states to request those funds And so what the Treasury Department does to raise that money is they issue a Treasury bond, which is basically just an IOU plus interest that they sell to banks, to foreign countries at auction that those banks and foreign countries can then redeem for the interest. Okay, so so far we've just talked about money that already exists. So now the question is, how is money being created? So that IOU gets purchased from the banks by the Federal Reserve. Now, the Federal Reserve purchases that treasury bond, that IOU, with money that they create out of thin air. So if the Federal Reserve is going to buy $2.2 trillion worth of treasury bonds, all they have to do is, you know, wave their magic wand and boom, $2.2 trillion comes into existence. And now the Federal Reserve owns government debt. So once again, in this example, that money is created and it is backed by debt. Or in other words, we have just once again, loaned more money into existence. Okay, so whether money is created the way we talked about before, which is like the example of somebody putting money into a bank and then they loan it out and that gets loaned out and loaned out and loaned out. So that's created through debt. But also when you're talking about the way the federal government creates money, they do it by creating debt. Is that right? That's right. And that part you mentioned about how the federal government can just wave a magic wand and create $2.2 trillion dollars out of nothing. That makes sense to me because I've heard that money in the United States used to be tied to a gold standard. Like for a certain amount of cash in existence, there had to be a certain amount of gold or silver in the federal treasury or the federal reserve. Yeah, that's right. So for a long time, the dollar was tied to gold. And so we couldn't just create unlimited amounts of dollars until in the 70s, the dollar was finally completely disassociated from gold. And since then, we've been able to just create as much money as the Federal Reserve essentially feels is necessary to create. Okay, so I can start to sense where this is headed, that that we're on a dangerous path because the dollar has no inherent value. It's not necessarily tied to an actual resource like you talked about before. It can just be created out of thin air. And on top of that, the way money is being created on a continual basis is purely out of debt. Exactly. And I think the biggest part of that is that it's debt plus interest owed. So if you think about it, almost all of the money in the system is debt or comes from debt plus interest that is owed on that debt. So where do we get the money from to pay all of that interest? Simply put, the only way to pay the interest back on those loans is to loan more money into existence, which means adding, again, more debt and more interest being owed. In other words, each year, all the outstanding debt in the system grows by the rate of interest on the debt. Because if there's an 8% interest rate average, then we have to create 8% more money to then be able to pay the interest rate from the prior year. Yeah, my head's spinning a little bit, but I think I'm with you. Yeah, so what this means is that we will always have more debt in the system than we have money. So I don't have the most up-to-date numbers, but to give you an idea, that peak prosperity video, which was produced in 2014, he said there was $12 trillion in the system and $60 trillion of debt in the U.S. So there was five times as much debt as there was even money floating around in the system. And that gap is just going to continue increasing over time as we follow this exponential growth of debt and money. And we talked a couple episodes about how crazy exponential growth can get. So debt growth and money growth are both exponential in our financial system. And because the system would collapse if too many people defaulted on their loan, everything that could possibly be done to keep that from happening is being done. People take out debt in order to consume things like a car, and also in order to grow, like a business. Both types of those debt create economic growth. 
So in other words, to support increased debt, we have to also grow economically. So this is what we meant when we said a few episodes ago that economic growth has to continue exponentially in our system. Because if people are continuing to take out debt, it's because the economy is growing because they're buying cars and they're increasing their businesses and all of those things. And so economic growth is not just like a nice to have. It's not just so that people can increase their standards of living. It's that if we don't have enough economic growth to support the exponential growth of debt, our banking and our financial system as we know it would implode. And because our financial system is the kind of the glue that holds our complex society together, if the financial system collapses, essentially society collapses. In the second episode, we talked about how complex of a society we are. And the financial system is kind of the pin in that complex grenade. If we pull that pin out, the whole thing just explodes. So I know this is a safe place <laughs> where I can raise my doubts and be a little bit skeptical. One concern I have is that like, yeah, this all sounds awful, but my whole life, I've just been hearing about how we're always going more and more into the deficit. And like, this is just how things work. So if it's been this way for a long time, can't we expect it to just continue for a long time? And I think that's part of the paradigm shift is that because we've grown up with this, it seems like normal, right? Like we've grown up with this idea that there's always inflation and we're always making new money and there's you know all these different things. But the truth is, like you were just saying, we used to be tied to gold and that kept the dollar to a specific value. And the creation of money really didn't happen very much at all historically. If you look at charts of money creation and how much money is in the system, the last like 200 years, all the way up to like the mid 1900s, it was almost flat. The only time there was ever creation of money was around wartime. But then a funny thing starts to happen on those charts. And it is that right around the late 70s and early 80s, debt and money creation go through the roof. And so I invite you to go and, and Google this information. I, I also am going to have resources on the show notes to this so that you can click through and see those. But I'm going to give you some numbers here, maybe to answer that question. I had written some down. So in 1982, our national debt, meaning the debt that the government owes, was $1 trillion. In 2014, it had grown to $17 trillion. And in just the last six years, it has grown by another $10 trillion to a total of $27 trillion. So the first few hundred years of our existence as a country we built up to $1 trillion of debt by 1982. And now, just 40 years later, we are at $27 trillion. So uh, basically, if you look at a graph, that is the definition of exponential growth. This year alone, 2020, we've added well over $3 trillion to the national deficit. So to think, where could it possibly be 10 years from now is frightening. Yeah, those numbers are frightening. And even though I'm still trying to understand exactly where the danger is, to think that in one year, in 2020, which isn't even over yet, and like, yeah, I know it's a crazy year where we've had a pandemic and things have been wild, but to think just in one year, we've done three times as much as we did in like 300 years, that blows my mind. It's one of those things that's just, it's truly hard to visualize and wrap your head around not only how fast it's growing, but what does it mean? And you just brought up the question of like, I don't really, what's the danger? I don't really necessarily see the danger in the growth. Our government has to pay interest on the national debt that comes out of the government's budget, meaning that for every bit that debt climbs, the government has to take away more and more out of that budget from other programs in order to pay that interest. We had a good lengthy conversation last episode about what happens when the government has to start taking away from other programs in order to pay for other things, right? And so as the debt continues to grow and we start to take away that money from other things that, it, that require it, like our infrastructure, that can send us down a path of catabolic collapse. But why does the government need to pull from other programs if they can just snap their fingers and invent money? Like if they can just make money out of thin air, then why not just say, well, now our budget is 10 times as much and we can cover everything? Yeah, cover my student loans while they're at it, right? <laughs> No, that's a really good question. And actually, we're going to cover that pretty extensively here in just a few minutes. So before we get to that question, keep that question in mind. Why can't the government just print as much money as they want? Let me just hammer home one more answer to your question about why is this exponential growth so dangerous? We just talked about the national debt and how fast it's growing. 
But also, when you just consider our total debt, so national debt plus state government debts plus consumer debt, so like my student loans and cars and mortgages and all of that, it is eight times higher today than it was in the 1980s. So it has octupled since then. Wow. So this is the part that scares me the most. It's the scenario of simply looking at what will happen if we continue our exponential debt growth until just the year 2044. So 24 years from now, over the last 30 years, debt has grown at an average rate of 8%, which means that it has doubled every nine years. So if the debt continues to rise at that rate and our economic growth manages to keep up with that, we would be at a total debt of $570 trillion by the year 2044. We're currently around $70 trillion. So we're talking about a growth of $500 trillion in debt over the next 24 years. So I did the numbers, and if you take a few of the biggest debts that consumers have, for example, like all of our student loans, all of the mortgages, and all of the credit card debt in America in 2020, you would only get $18.6 trillion. So what kind of economic growth and advancement are we going to possibly have in the next 24 years that would justify us loaning out an additional $500 trillion? We're talking about half a quadrillion. We're, like, we're getting into just insane, uh, just crazy amounts of money. It's truly inconceivable. And frankly, I just don't see how it's possible. And so when I look at the U.S. financial system as it is right now, I personally don't see how it survives at this rate for another 20 years. And when you throw out those crazy numbers of debt that we will hit if we continue on this path, and you say it seems unlikely that our economic growth will match that, you're referring to like the goods and services that we produce. Like There's no way we can produce that much to match that debt. Right. So if all of those debts represent loans, right? If all that money is being created by banks loaning out money to people to buy things like cars, to start businesses, all of those things they're doing with that loaned money is economic growth. And so our economy has to continue to grow in order for the debt to continue to climb in order for us to be able to pay the interest on the debt we already have. And even if we could grow at that economic rate, even if there was enough people with enough interest to buy enough things, do we have enough fossil fuels and energy to be able to create that much product, which goes back to what we've talked about already in the past. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Okay, got it. So that makes sense why that is so dangerous. But what about my question from before about why the government can't just make more and more money to take care of all this? The U.S. has three options when it comes to their debt. Either we grow economically enough to continue to pay it off, we default on it, or the Fed just prints enough money to pay for it. So we've already established that when it comes to economic growth, we live on a finite planet, we have finite resources, and if we peak in those resources... We can't continue to grow economically. And so that's an immediate danger in the coming decades we've already discussed. When it comes to defaulting on it, if we default on our loans, the entire financial system collapses completely. Banks would disappear. We would go into a depression that would make the Great Depression look like child's play. And it would lead to a rapid form of the catabolic collapse that we've discussed already. So your question, why can't we just print money? It seems like it's pretty easy to do, honestly, right? 
So at the beginning of the episode, I, I mentioned that the value of the dollar isn't consistent. It changes over time. And the reason for this is because of inflation. And I think we've all heard of inflation. We've probably heard about instances of like hyperinflation in foreign countries and historically. But what inflation really is, is just the devaluing of the dollar. And it is the reason why we can't just print a bunch of money. So to explain what that means, there's a couple different main causes for inflation. But the one I think that's most important here is to talk about there being an increase in the supply of money. And as an example, let's just say that we live in a very simple economy, you and I. And I'm going to represent the demand side, the buyer, and we'll have you represent the supply side, the seller. So if you sell fruit and I make a wage of $10 a day, you know that because of the other things I have to pay for, I would be willing to pay about a dollar for your fruit. So that's what you sell it to me for. The next time I come to market, though, I've got a raise and I now make $100 a day. You know that and I know that and I know that I'm now willing to pay like $10 and you figure the same. So now you're going to charge me $10 for that same fruit that I paid a dollar for yesterday. And it's simply just because there was more money in the system now. Most people would say that inflation means that the product got more expensive. But in reality, what that actually means is that my dollar is just worth less now than it was before. That dollar has less purchasing power. I need 10 of them to buy the same thing that I was able to buy with one before. And I get that, but can't we just operate at that new normal? You're still just giving 10% of your income for my fruit, just like you were before. Because what if in our example, I had been putting a dollar every paycheck away into the bank to save for the future, right? And now all of a sudden, my dollar is worth 10 times less than it was worth before. If I had been, I don't know, saving up my entire life for retirement, and now all of a sudden, my dollar is worth a tenth of what it was, I don't have enough money to live on in retirement. Now, the problem with inflation in real life is that it can also grow exponentially. If we continue to print more and more money, for example, to cover our past debts, then it can quickly spiral completely out of control. And the money that I have saved up is now worth nothing. Or banks who have offered a loan to me on a house for $300,000. Well, what if by the time I pay that back, that $300,000 is now worth the equivalent of $30? That bank would surely go out of business. And so it throws a huge wrench into the whole financial system. As an example of that, we can look to uh, Zimbabwe in 2007. So they are an example of what's called hyperinflation. And so what happened there is that in the decade leading up to 2007, the government had been printing money to fund some of their war involvements and also for their own corrupt purposes of making themselves wealthy. So that soon led to too much money in the system. And before long, the price of everything was doubling almost every day. We're talking monthly inflation rates in the hundred of millions percent. Again, numbers that are unfathomable, but like 500 million percent growth rate in the amount of money in the system. People were walking around with 10 billion Zimbabwe dollars, and there's photos of people wheelbarrowing money down the road to make simple purchases. It got so bad that at one point, and my dad actually brought me one of these bills one time, of a 100 trillion Zimbabwe note. In the U.S., imagine having a trillion dollar bill, and that was what you know a loaf of bread was worth. Well, for me, let's say I'm retiring with a million dollars in the bank, but it takes a trillion dollars to buy a loaf of bread then what is my million dollars worth? If I'm relying on my savings to get by, there's no way I'll do it, right? That million dollars might be the equivalent of a penny. So hyperinflation is extremely dangerous and it, it really does become just completely unsustainable. I love the way you explained that. I think you illustrated that really well and it clarifies for me why it would be such a mess if we were experiencing hyperinflation. Yeah, and the way inflation works, it's interesting because it's actually a self-fulfilling prophecy as well. If the general public starts to get this fear that inflation is getting out of hand, they take their money from their savings because they think it's not going to be worth as much in the future, and they spend it. But when you get everyone taking money out of their savings and putting it into the system, you're actually increasing the rate of inflation. And so that's another big danger, and that's why the government does everything they can to keep inflation under control. In just the last 30 years or so, governments have started setting up target inflation rates where they actually say, all right, we want our inflation to be no more than 2% every year. Less than that means we're not having enough economic growth. More than that means we're having too many dollars printed. 
And like once again, this goes back to the idea that we feel like this is normal, right? We just know that like we should be getting pay raises for the increased standard of living because of inflation over time. But that it hasn't always been that way. Once again, if you look at the charts from history, inflation was pretty non-existent, except for around wartime. But then it always came back down until mid-20th century. And now it's just this hockey stick exponential growth of how much money is in the system. And this is really interesting because when I was doing the research for this episode, I was watching, again, that Peak Prosperity video to get some more insight and since they were made in 2014, I thought I'd look up a couple of things with the more recent 2020 numbers. And one of those things I looked up was the amount of U.S. dollars that are currently in the system. And so in 2014, there was around $12 trillion, like we had talked about before. And so I expected that in 2020, there would probably be something like 14 or $15 trillion in the system. But I'll tell you what, Kellen, when I pulled up the chart on Google, I literally pushed my chair away from my desk and kind of just sat like slack-jawed for a minute. And honestly, I had a little bit of almost an anxiety attack. Like I had to step away from it for a minute. I had to go out for a walk, clear my head, because what I saw really did actually shock me. And most things don't, but this one really did. The chart showed that we now have over $21 trillion in circulation. That was a 25% influx in the cash in the system just this year in 2020. Basically, the chart is, it's, a, it's your classic, you know, hockey stick chart where it kind of starts to go exponential. But literally, just in this last year at the very end of the chart, it shoots vertically because we have put so much money into the system because of the coronavirus pandemic and the need for the stimulus and all that. It was just unbelievable to me. I'm not surprised that it created a little bit of an anxiety attack for you because even just hearing all these crazy numbers and how extreme the situation is makes me want to do exactly what you were talking about people would do and go take all my money out of the bank and try and put it into something that I feel has more actual value. But one question I have at this point, you've talked about how we've introduced so much money into the system. Why then aren't we seeing crazy inflation rates right now? Yeah, so there's two reasons for that. Um, the first is that it takes some time for inflation to show itself after a lot of money is put into the system. And we're still in this pandemic, which is leading to recession. And so because people are spending less money because they're stuck at home or because people are losing their jobs, that causes deflation. So if people aren't putting money into the system, then the price of goods can start to come down. And so by the government putting a whole lot of money into the system, at least for the moment, it just looks balanced out. So instead of us being deflated, it kind of brings our numbers back up to that normal target rate of 2%. But the second reason is that we actually are seeing some inflation in other parts of the system. So while we may not see it in the price of goods in the store or in gas prices and things like that, where we are seeing inflation is at the top with the wealthiest Americans. So in the stimulus, which was $2.2 trillion, about 25% of that went to the people through the $1,200 check that everybody got and the extra $600 per week unemployment benefits. That was about a quarter of all the stimulus. The other 75% of that money, the other $1.5 trillion or so, went to large corporations to bail them out, went to small businesses. And by the way, the government was not required to disclose who that money went to. So we can appreciate that most of it is probably in the hands of the wealthiest. So because of that, the goods that increase in price aren't our everyday products that we buy. You know, if you give a billionaire another billion dollars, he's not going to go out and buy 500 million loaves of bread. He's going to put that money instead into things like the stock market. He's going to buy more bonds. He's going to buy homes, buy the things that really wealthy people buy. So that's why in the midst of this awful recession with high unemployment rates, we're actually seeing a boost to the stock market and house prices are increasing. When this all started, I thought, how is it possible that house prices aren't coming down? You know, I thought there'd be a housing crash. How is it possible that the stock market has rebounded so much? And it's because the government has put so much money at the top to the wealthy that they are then able to put the money back into the system at the top. 
And so we're seeing an inflation of the things that the wealthy spend their money on. But what happens is over time, that money eventually makes its way down to us. Trickle-down economics, right? Everybody loves to talk about that. That money eventually gets into the regular system. And so once that comes down to the middle class and there's more money floating around, that has the potential to drive up the cost of our regular goods. You know, you mentioned like stocks as one of the places that the wealthy may put their money toward. And I'll just say that the stock market is mind-blowing to me, kind of related to that self-fulfilling prophecy you talked about before with inflation. To me, it's crazy that the stock market can be so volatile and it's all just built on like the trust that people have in it. So people get spooked about something in the market and it's not like the goods and services in the market have actually decreased at all, but stocks can take an absolute dive. And so it's almost like it's just a reflection of how people feel which to me is kind of scary. There's no real value there. Exactly. The stock market rises and falls based on uncertainty in the market. When people get nervous, they sell their stock and then everyone else does and it just crashes it. And so when things get inflated, when there's so much inflation to a point that's not sustainable or doesn't actually reflect the actual value of the asset that's inflating, that's what's called a bubble. And you inflate a bubble too much, it will pop, right? And that's what we saw happen in 2008 with the housing market. There was a bubble in the price of houses that was above what they were actually worth, what people were actually able to pay. And eventually that bubble popped, causing a housing crisis. And so we face that same potential issue when there's too much inflation that the market catches up and realizes stuff isn't actually worth this much. Or as an example, if the stocks get too high because the wealthy are receiving a lot of money, but the economy is not doing well because the people at the bottom, us, are struggling and not buying goods and services, then the stock market can only increase for so long before that bubble will inevitably pop and it will fall back. All right. So up till now, this entire episode, we've just talked about the financial system and how it could lead to collapse on its own, how it's not sustainable. And while the economy relies on the financial system on one side, it also relies on resources on the other side. When we put the two together, we can start to get a bigger picture about why the system as a whole is so fragile. So right now during the coronavirus is a great example of that. You know, we dedicated an episode already to energy. And in that episode, we laid out the whole issue of peak oil supply. But what we haven't really covered is peak oil demand, which is what is currently happening this year. So to explain what I mean, in the energy episode, we talked about what would happen if we ran low on oil. What I want to touch on now is what happens if there's too much oil. Just this year so far, 40 gas and oil companies have declared bankruptcies. Just for perspective, in 2014, there were over 1,600 oil rigs active in the U.S. In March of this year, before the recession started, there were 600. And as of this month, October 2020, there are only 189. So we've lost almost 90% of oil rigs in operation in the U.S. in just the last six years. So in the energy episode, we talked about how people against the idea of peak oil always said that a day would come when we'd hit a peak in the demand of oil and not hit the peak in supply, meaning more was being produced than we're buying. But those people argued that that was due to the increase in renewable technology and that because of that, we would have lesser need for fossil fuels and that the industry would die. The thing is, we haven't hit a point where renewables are even close to replacing fossil fuels. So the question then is, why are oil companies struggling so much right now and going out of business? And is it just because people have been on lockdown, they've been stuck at home, working from home, not driving very much, not traveling, not flying? Is that the kind of thing that we're talking about? Yeah, that's a big part of it. Like I had said, you know, since the beginning of the recession till now, we've dropped from 600 oil rigs down to 189. But in the five years prior to that, we had dropped from 1,600 down to 600. So we actually lost a lot more over those six years than we have since the recession. So that's, while what you're talking about with the coronavirus shutdowns is a big part of it, it's not all of it. So the way I view it, there's three parts to this equation. There's fossil fuels, there's renewables, and there's economic growth. If fossil fuels plus renewables equals enough energy for enough economic growth to cover the cost of our growing debt, then we're good. If fossil fuels 
plus renewables does not equal enough energy for enough economic growth to cover the cost of our growing debt, then we get economic downturn. And as we know right now, we are in the middle of a huge economic downturn. But then why did we slow the buying of fossil fuels before the economy started to turn? So one reason is that wage disparity means that people can't buy as much as they could before. As the wage gap gets bigger and bigger, it means that anyone that's not in the top 1%, they are able to buy less and less things. And so much of the U.S. is considered poor, right? And when we're talking about the 1% or even the 10%, that still leaves 90% of people who are falling lower and lower in the amount that they're making and in the amount that they're able to spend on things. People have a ceiling on the amount they're willing to spend on the goods that come from fossil fuels. So when we think about how much we're willing to pay for clothes and how much we're willing to pay for homes or cars and gasoline, there's just a certain amount that we're not going to spend more than on those things. Well, oil companies also have a floor on the amount they can sell their oil for at a profit. So because the EROEI of oil is now so low, like we've talked about in the energy episode, the lowest amount that they can sell it for keeps increasing. So what's happening is that we're seeing the lowest price they can offer getting too close or even higher than the highest price that we're willing to pay for it. And because of that, the weaker oil and gas companies are going under, leaving really only the biggest businesses with good enough profit margins to survive. Because we lowered the amount of fossil fuels being purchased, but we haven't increased the amount of renewables being purchased, we're not meeting that required economic growth rate to pay off the interest rate on all the debt in the system. And that leads to recession and joblessness. So that combined with businesses shutting down due to to COVID, people getting laid off from their jobs and people buying even less oil-based products, that is why we're seeing right now a huge exodus of oil and gas companies from the industry. And it's such a good reminder for me because I still am in the mindset where I think oil, that means gasoline. And it's so much more than that. Like we've talked about before, Oil is required for basically everything from like agriculture to manufacturing. Yeah. But that's interesting. That's something I've never really thought of before that, that the oil companies are saying, hey, we're, hey, we have to sell it for at least this much to make a profit. And that amount keeps going up. And we as consumers are saying, hey, we're struggling. We're willing to spend less and less money. So that mismatch creates turmoil and issues. Yeah. And that's why I'll be really interested to see what happens with this current recession that we're in. Because really, to me, there's only two solutions to getting out of this funk. Either renewables have to very quickly, and probably more quickly than possible, take over where fossil fuels have left off to get us to that total amount of energy we have to be producing. Or the oil industry has to be able to make a comeback. And with how many investors right now are currently losing all the money that they put into the oil companies that have now gone under because of a decreasing EROEI and really terrible returns that we talked about, most shell and tar sand companies aren't profitable. I find it hard to believe that enough money and investment are going to go back into the system after so many companies are already gone for the industry to be able to make enough of a comeback. So if we continue underperforming on economic growth due to less energy consumption, eventually that leads to potential problems like debt defaults, right? Or Hyperinflation would be the other option because the government prints the money or catabolic collapse because the government tries to fix all these issues by taking from other parts of the system. So what should we be watching for as things move forward, especially in this current recession? A couple of questions I ask myself would be, will the government continue printing money for stimuluses? So we've seen a $4 trillion jump this year. Is there going to be trillions more to come in the near future? Does the price of housing and the stock market continue to inflate? And if so, when does that bubble pop? Are the prices of other goods inflating as well? So has that money started to trickle its way down to the middle and lower classes? Will the government subsidize the oil industry? So will the government essentially pay oil companies what they need in order to stay solvent? And if so, where does that money come from? Does it come from other programs? and cause catabolic collapse? Or does that come from being printed, which could cause hyperinflation? Or probably most likely, does it come from a little bit of both or a lot of both? And lastly, what's happening with the national debt? You know, Donald Trump said in 2016, when he was elected, that he was going to eliminate the national debt over eight years in office. There was $19 trillion in national debt that year. And now it's almost 50% higher at $27 trillion. So we're not on that path that he's 
promised yet. He also completely removed the debt ceiling until at least 2021, meaning there's no limit to the amount of debt the government will allow itself to add. In the past, there's been debt ceiling so that when we hit that ceiling, Congress has to come together. They have to come up with a solution. Usually that just ends up being to raise the debt ceiling. It's kind of pointless. But it at least holds us to a bit of a standard and flashes warning signs. And the Trump administration got rid of this ceiling before the recession ever happened because they didn't want there to be a fight in Congress leading up to the election. But what that did was allow for a $2.2 trillion stimulus and all this money being put into the system and all this debt being created without anyone being held accountable for it at all, which to me is worrying. So those are the questions that I would I would ask, the things I would pay attention to. I'm not saying that like right now we're on the edge of some impending immediate collapse. We've talked about how collapse is a process, it happens over time, and so it's more like going from disaster to disaster. So it just kind of feels like right now we are living in our own little portion of the collapse process. Wow. You know, with each of these episodes, I get more and more convinced of what you've been trying to convince me of all along. And each time we cover a new topic, it just compounds what I've already been taught by you in these previous episodes. I think like, wow, we're so complex and we've overshot and we've got this lack of resources, which creates these problems now in the economy. And I start to think of things we haven't even talked about yet. I'm sure we will later. Like the fact that we keep having more and more hurricanes that we can't cover the cost of and California's on fire and we've got so many other crazy things and each problem just accelerates the other problems. So my mind is spinning a little bit with what you've taught me in this podcast episode, and I'm kind of nervous for where we're going to get to in the future. <laughs> well, I'm glad that the concept is coming across and that it's taking hold, because when I kind of laid out how I wanted to do this podcast, I specifically wanted it so that each episode would build on things that were learned in the past episodes. And the things that we're going to learn in the next episodes will compound on it as well. And look, Everything we've talked about up to this point, not just today, but in all six of these episodes, it is the way that it is because of choices made by people along the way. When it comes to things like our financial system and our use of fossil fuels, those are choices that have been made by our government. Economics, our financial system, inequality, these are all decisions the government has made along the way, which they're allowed to do because we, the people, give them legitimacy. Next week's episode, we're going to talk about political power, the corruption behind it, and also what happens when its legitimacy is called into question. And I'm really excited for that episode because we talked in the complexity episode about how every complex society needs organization. And really, our political system is the organization that keeps it all together. And I think it's really interesting to consider perhaps how fragile that system is as well. I'm going to be in suspense all week. Well, I like to keep you on your toes, so we'll talk then. <laughs>